And when I go to sleep, I listen to myself speak. Come on. Come on. The people got to hear you. Got to hear what you got to say. I just got home from D.C. and Virginia oh, yeah. area last night. Um, yeah, what so, were you doing there? Uh, it was another wedding. Nice. Um, it's been fucking wedding season, man. Yeah. yeah. But it was my first time in D.C. and stuff. Got to see the halls of power, dude, you know. That's crazy. Checking man. out Biden, shaking his hand, you know, asking him what his situation with nuclear power is, you know. Just checking in. <laughs> checking in on things. Say, like, what the hell with the whole <laughs> Afghanistan thing? Yeah, exactly. Tried to climb out the Capitol building a little bit, you know. Yeah, yeah. Just standard like Normal D.C. things. Yeah, exactly. I spent all day trying to write this stupid extension for um, VS Code. I'm supposed to be writing my fucking thesis, but I'm not doing that. <laughs> this is what I'm doing instead. But this will help so much in yeah. writing your thesis, you know? Well, well, this is the bloody thing with like productivity <laughs> hacks. It's like I spend three weeks trying to make myself more productive and <laughs> yeah. I completely waste three weeks of time. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. But yeah, so no, we're, we're finally coming back to the Conjectures and Refutations series. Um, and today we're doing chapter three titled Three Views Concerning Human Knowledge. Um, so I love this chapter and rereading it, there's a number of great insights that uh, that I gleaned that I missed the first first couple times, but high level overview. So what's going on? So um, Popper is basically going to take a giant swing at <laughs> two views of human knowledge, which he does not subscribe to. One mm-hmm. is instrumentalism um, and the other is essentialism. By attacking instrumentalism, he's a basic, he's basically attacking every physics department on the planet. And <laughs> by attacking essentialism, he's essentially attacking most philosophers. He's, I was comparing him to like the, the honey badger of philosophers. He'll just fucking attack everyone. <laughs> and yeah, so let's maybe start with instrumentalism. And the way that he is going to describe instrumentalism is by opening the chapter with the story of Galileo. But a unique perspective on it that I actually now is familiar to me, but I think before reading this, I didn't actually interpret it in this way. Like, I think everyone knows of like the conflict between Galileo and the church, but the spin on it of like, but what both wanted was, I think, novel to me. So, mm-hmm. you know, everyone knows that like Galilean science was like promoting the Copernican um, heliocentric model and the church was obviously not in favor of this because it contradicted the biblical science which was saying that earth is at you know the center of everything um what i didn't know about this conflict though was that the church was okay with using the copernican system to like make predictions and stuff and actually acknowledged it was more it was better actually as a predictive instrument so it actually allowed us to do better things in terms of predicting constellations where the moon's going to be etc right so it allowed us to do like things that that led to better scientific results but it wouldn't take the additional step of saying this is actually a true description of the Mm -hmm. world it was like oh this is just a theory that happens to work this the earth of course, is still the center of everything, but this is just a convenient sort of tool for like what we want to measure. Um, and I, I don't think I'd actually known that that mm-hmm. side of the story before. And so what Popper does is he starts with this story and everyone's kind of nodding their head and thinking, <laughs> ha, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, and then he very subtly points out that modern physicists are essentially taking the side of the church and not Galileo. Um, so this gets us nicely to the subject of instrumentalism. Um, instrumentalism is simply not being concerned with truth. 
and only being concerned with developing better and better instruments. Um, and how this has manifested itself in modern physics is described in the following quote. So he says, what they now care about as physicists is A, mastery of the mathematical formalism, i.e. the instrument, and B, its applications, and they care for nothing else. And this is where Deutsch's work is so relevant because he's trying to course correct physicists um, back to caring about the implications of their theories. Yeah. So, yeah, we should say re-physics. This is still an ongoing problem. So this wasn't yeah. just something that like Popper pointed out that was subsequently resolved. This is an attitude that like carries on to this day and something that like, as you said, Deutsch points out, but also there's also more and more physicists, I think, who are, who are tr exactly Sean Carroll's like a big proponent. I know Deutsch and Carroll actually disagree about their interpretation, but both are trying to interpret um, quantum mechanics as a theory saying things about the structure of the world and the universe and like what it says and are trying to figure that out. Um, whereas that, yeah, for a lot of physicists, that's not true. And I remember actually, so yeah, the physicist Frank Wilczek was uh, on Sam Harris's podcast, like six months ago to a year ago or something. And explicitly says, um, you know, maybe it's not our role to like interpret the theories, mm -hmm. right? Quantum mechanics makes start startlingly accurate predictions and maybe that should be enough for us, right? Like who says we are responsible for interpreting the theories? Who says that the theory should even be interpretable mm -hmm. to like a human mind that we should even try, right? Like we've had amazing su success with quantum mechanics just as a purely predictive theory. Once you start trying to interpret the math and figure out what the math is actually saying about reality, things get incredibly complicated. So maybe we should just stop trying. Mm -hmm. So anyway, all of this is to say that this uh, attitude is still prevalent, um, especially in physics departments. I think Sean Carroll gave a really nice example in some podcast somewhere where he um, said, okay, just imagine um, meteorologists adopted an instrumentalist perspective um, and they got really good at predicting um, hurricanes and um, sunny days. And then people say, well, why? Um, why do hurricanes happen and why do we get sun? And then all of the meteorologists just throw up their hands and say, well, it's not up to us to interpret these equations. It could be gods. It could be um, little space aliens, but it really doesn't matter what the, um, the cause of these things are, why we see what we see. All that matters is that we can do successful mm -hmm. predictions. I think it's worth maybe providing like a bit of historical background on instrumentalism yeah. and prag and pragmatism in general as an as as someone reading about it you're kind of like how could anyone think this like you know like how can you not talk about truth at all um but instrumentalism seems to mostly be associated with john dewey um who who like built his whole philosophy around like pragmatism um and just like doing what is useful and what like improves the human condition so he was like philosopher of like um many things but in particular like democracy and political philosophy and things like this but instrumentalism instrumentalism itself was like it was an important pushback to so, like sort of naive realism that thought we could like prove things for sure or like know things with certainty so um and popper obviously deals with this in a different way but instrumentalism says okay look we can't like experimentation can never be exhaustive. So we can never prove something um, about the physical world beyond um, all doubt, right? Mm -hmm. And we can never know what's true or false beyond all doubt. So, so, so what do they do with this? Well, they throw out the labels of true and false and they say, okay, 
now we're not going to judge theories um up cons- like on their truth because because they don't know how to do that so they just say okay now we're going to start judging theories purely based on their merit as predictive instruments purely based on how successful they are as instruments so in a way instrumentalism was like very useful sort of as because it, it acknowledged this this um problem that we have with truth and truth and falsity that we could like never really recognize it and now so popper obviously criticizes instrumentalism and provides a a better way of sort of dealing with this but um in general instrumentalism i think one uh it's important to note that it did like recognize this problem Mm -hmm. and sort of a problem that was brought about by sort of naive realism and also in many other domains outside of science instrumentalism is very useful so like yeah like democracy and stuff like there we don't ask questions about what is true we ask questions like how do we set up political systems that are as good as possible right are as useful as possible um and there we're really only talking about like the instrumental value of like political institutions Mm -hmm. decision making processes and stuff like that um and so we are i would say a lot of us are instrumentalists just in other areas besides the philosophy of science. Um, and it's sort of just when instrumentalism impedes into the philosophy of science that there begins to be this, this problem that Popper is noticing. Oh, interesting. I think we may have an ever so slight difference in definitions. So what didn't I like about that? Let me try to tease it out carefully. This better be our first disagreement in a while. I'm excited. Let's go, baby. You know, I, I don't think it's a big disagreement. I think it's a very subtle one because I, I think that there's a... Um, because instrumentalism, I see, is is not caring about truth. I would, and, but I would argue that's what's going on in the political domain. Like you're not caring about you're not you're not even asking the question, what is the true like what's a just the true system? So so the problem with with this is that there's like some nested things happening because you can inquire about how instruments work exactly. And if you inquire about how instruments work, then there's all of a sudden theories about how instruments work. And then you can start asking if that theory about the instrument is true or false. Yeah, but okay, but the church ignore, I think the church is willing to go meta, the instrumentalist is willing to go meta to that extent, the church was willing to acknowledge that the Galilean science was a better predictive tool, right? Popper says this explicitly, than the model where the earth is at the center, right? So the instrumentalist is willing to, it's willing to judge tool A against tool B. Yes, yes. And then as soon as the instrumentalist asks the question, why is tool A better than tool B? And then starts proposing theories to explain why tool A is better than tool B. Then the instrumentalist is no longer an instrumentalist because they are now proposing theories about when these theories can be true or false. So you can have theories about instruments, Right. Sure. Yeah. Um, and you can have theories about the instrument of democracy versus the instrument of totalitarianism. Yeah. And then you can say that those theories about these instruments are true, right? Or false. I mean, the church, like, the, okay, so if you had asked a member of the church, if you'd asked, like, the Pope, why is the Galilean science a better predictive tool than uh, the uh, geocentric uh, model, he would have had an answer. Wouldn't he wouldn't have just like short circuited his brain and said, of, of course, of course. But it's once he has an answer to that, he is no longer operating in the mode of an instrumentalist because he's now concerned with truth and falsity. So once. Yeah, OK, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah I once see. you care about true or false, once there's st- you're trying to figure out the reality of the difference between this instrument and that instrument. Yeah. Then you are trying to figure out the reality of the instrument. Right. right. So it's the difference between like is questions and why questions. But a lot of people are just diff- interested in like the is questions with respect to democracy. Like is democracy a more effective tool than an autocracy or something? Not everyone does ask the why. 
instrumentalism is not caring about the why, and it's not trying to propose theories which we can say are true or false, because the goal is to just make better and better right. instruments. Um, yeah, yeah. But then you can have people theorizing about instruments, and yeah, which no is no longer in the realm yeah. of instruments. Okay, okay, nice. Yeah, yeah. That's that is more subtle than what I had in mind. But my point was that is questions are still valuable. They're not. They don't lose their value. It's it's valuable to always ask the additional question of like why something is a better tool in a, in a specific situation. And that's yeah. all well and good. But it doesn't mean that is question is all of a sudden completely uninteresting. It's still interesting to just know what are strategies that get people to vote more? What are strategies to like reduce police brutality? Right. Like things like that. So let's talk about the opposite of instrumentalism, essentialism to, to kind of like get us in the right headspace. We should be considering the difference between appearance and reality behind the appearance. So some examples. So we have little pinpricks of light in the sky. That's the appearance. And then the reality behind the appearance is like big burning balls of gas, <laughs> um, stars, <laughs> moons, and, and planets. And, and you have lightning. And then the reality behind the appearance would be atoms and electrons. And there's what you see. And then there's the reality behind what you see. One point that he makes about instrumentalism is that our understanding of reality, our understanding of what is behind the appearance is so enriched by scientists and thinkers. And I shouldn't even say scientists um, enriched by the ideas of people who have come before us. And we kind of forget almost that things like the notion of cells and the notion of air, like air is invisible, but now we all know that air exists. Um, these are posited entities which were posited to explain the appearances that we see in reality. Yeah. And if we only ever took an instrumentalist perspective, we would have none of these concepts. Um, because to get concepts like air and cells and H2O and stars and things you can't see directly, but yet we know they exist, to get these concepts um, requires us caring about the thing behind the appearances. So that's why instrumentalism would impoverish us all. It would, it would get rid of these concepts or it would prevent the discovery of new concepts. Yeah. I mean, the only thing is I thought his criticism of instrumentalism actually could have been much more along the lines that you just laid out, which I actually think is the strongest criticism, which that it really impedes progress being made. So like we posit these things and then we ask if this was true or if 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 those things existed or if they didn't exist, what consequences would follow, right? And then we develop theories upon theories, and then we go out, we try and test them, and and then and then we either we find these things, or we don't find them, or we find what they would logically entail, or don't find them, et cetera. And this allows us to like start knowing if these things are real. Um and he I find he doesn't actually emphasize this notion of like progress enough. Um, which is, I think, honestly, the best criticism instrumentalism. It was kind of, it would kind of like we'd be stuck at this one stage where we're just using our current predictive tools, and it's actually very difficult to develop new predictive tools if you're not hypothesizing about like the hidden hidden realities that we can't see. I think I don't know if it's Deutsch or someone has this line about like science is explaining the seen by the unseen, and if you're not positing anything about the unseen, it's very very difficult to actually make progress about anything. If you're not hypothesizing about atoms or uh, cells, like you said, right? Any of these are the internals of cells um, or black holes, quasars, any of these things, which were all hypothesized before we actually um, confirmed that they existed. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's super difficult to like 
uh, come up with new theories because there's you you really can't test them, right? You <laughs> kind of try and test theories by by the things they're positing and then deducing the consequences of of those things. Um, so anyway, I thought his criticism of instrumentalism was he he like he alludes to this a little bit, but I find it wasn't actually as strong as as kind of you just. Um, so, I thought you did a better job than than he did, honestly. Yeah. Well, so I think it may have gone by in a bit of a flash, but at the bottom of page one thirty seven. I'm going to summarize a little bit and then I'll do a direct quote. Science progresses by first noticing regularities in appearances and then trying to explain these regularities. And these attempts to explain the known by the unknown have immeasurably extended the realm of the known. They've added to the facts of our everyday world, the invisible air, the circulation of the blood, the world of the telescopes, the microscope of electricity, of tracer atoms showing us in detail the movements of matter within living bodies. All these things are far from being mere instruments. They are witness to the intellectual conquests of our world by our minds. But there's another way of looking at all these matters. For some, science is nothing but glorified plumbing. And this is the instrumentalist view, which is that we aren't interested in trying to continue to posit new entities in the world and try to explain the known by the unknown. We just want to make gadgets and so i i got some of that from nice yeah yeah okay so yeah he does yeah. allude to it but oddly not in his yeah. actual section titled criticism yeah. of the instrumentalist <laughs> yeah. view which is a little yeah. confusing but yeah. okay yeah. Yeah. all right popper so okay so let's let's do the mere opposite of instrumentalism um essentialism so this concept didn't really click for me until i did a little bit of reading about the problem of universals and then it started to click a bit more so the problem of universals what is this let me set this up so it goes back to plato and aristotle and it's around the notion of universal terms. Let's just use the concept of round, roundness. Does roundness exist? Is roundness a thing? Um, or is it just a description of a thing? That's, that's the question that we should have in our heads. When we look at things like roundness or uh, wetness or brittleness, some people want to say that these are existent. They, they are real. Other people want to say they are just a way to describe classes or sets of things. So we wouldn't say that whiteness exists. We would say that if you ask what do snowballs and tablecloths and plastic forks have in common, they have in common this property that we're going to call white. And so one camp are the nominalists, where nominalism means basically in name only. So nominalists say whiteness doesn't refer to anything. It's just a name for a property which is shared by a collection of things. It's just a name. It's just a label. Realists, but Popper re words the word realist, and he's going to say essentialists say, no, no, no. Whiteness, roundness is an essential property of a snowball, say. So let's just I'm mixing my, my examples a bunch, but... So the essentialist is going to say, when I look at a snowball, it has certain essential properties, um, like coldness, like roundness, like whiteness. And what we as scientists want to do is we want to drill into the essence of what is a snowball. We should say, yeah, so when you say essence as well, I think a helpful synonym to have in mind is that which does not need further explanation. So for me, I always get a little confused thinking about it, but I find it's more helpful to just think of essentialists are looking for those properties 
of whatever they're investigating that does not need further explanation. So Popper used the example of like Newtonian mechanics and like forces and gravity. Some people thought that just gravity was like an essential, the force of gravity was an essential property of matter. It was imbued with this. And now the only other answer going beyond that might just be that God decided to do it. But anyway, so just a helpful synonym to have in mind there is um, just that which does not need to be further explained, further investigated. You're hitting, hitting rock bottom of reality asking why something has an essential property is that's a nonsense question you can't yeah. ask uh why is round round that just doesn't yeah. that doesn't yeah. make sense yeah. even more so than instrumentalism essentialism is so important for everyone to have in their minds because i see it just like dominating politics um what popper describes in the poverty of historicism as methodological essentialism so methodological the method of Essentialism is asking what is questions. So what is consciousness? What is life? What is democracy? Mm-hmm. Um, when you ask a what is question, you're trying to inquire about the true nature of something. So the alternative to asking what is questions, how questions, questions like how does this piece of matter behave in various circumstances? Um, how does it move in the presence of other bodies? So the alternative to what is questions are how do these behave kinds of questions and also regarding words as merely useful instruments of description. So mm-hmm. words are instruments, theories are not. This is so important that it's worth repeating. <laughs> words are instruments, theories are not. Why is this important and where does it connect to politics? Um, when people start asking questions like what is racism is a really good example mm-hmm. because now we're not asking Um, How do we, say, reduce inequities between groups? But we're asking, what is the true core of racism? Is it the interactions between individuals? Or is it about uh, entire systems? Is it about structures? As soon as you start asking what is questions, the goalposts shift in a very subtle way, where now you're interrogating the true nature of a word. You're trying to argue about the definition of a word. And you're no longer trying to ask probing questions about reality, you're asking definitional questions. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's so easy to fall into the trap of asking things like, well, what is the true nature of suffering? Or what is good? What is bad with a capital B? What is the nature of Western civilization? Um, When you start Mm -hmm. asking these what is questions, you have trapped yourself into playing definition games without realizing it. Um, so we talked about how he was attacking physicists in the first part, but why this is attacking philosophers is that you have entire branches of philosophy that are dedicated to answering questions like what is suffering? What is the nature of good? And in open society and its enemies, Popper actually attributes the stagnation of many social science disciplines to methodological essentialism, by which he means these disciplines have stagnated because they're asking the wrong questions. And so instead of asking questions like, what is racism? We should ask, how do we create schools that reduce the uh, average uh, test score gap? How do we achieve a society that has reductions in poverty? How do we uh, mitigate the worst forms of suffering? How do we improve relations between nations and civilizations and stuff? And so the what is questions to how questions is so key And this is, I think, a very interesting um, insight that comes from 
uh, the study of essentialism. Oh, dude, that was beautiful. <laughs> I uh, I wanted us to do uh, an ep- like an episode on uh, yeah. essentialism versus nominalism at some point, but I don't think we yeah. need to anymore. That oh, that description was just perfect. This uh, yeah, this this part was actually I think my favorite part of the open society and its enemies. And he does a prolonged discussion about like the role of essentialism versus nominalism when it comes to terms like, yeah, justice. Um, and, and, you know, what is, and, and peace, um, and, uh, wealth, right. And poverty. And, uh, so uh, yeah, I won't repeat what you just said, but I will say that acknowledging this and recognizing this in life is an incredibly freeing, attitude to take with respect to language right because now you don't have to sit there and get mad that someone is using the term in a way you find frustrating you can just for the sake of the conversation you adopt the term they're using to refer to whatever it is they want to refer to and then you just go from there and then you talk about solutions to problems and how to deal with that but you don't have to attach this like meaning to language and then argue about like, well, I thought racism was this, you think it's that, it, you know, racism can only be held by people in power and, you know, um, et cetera, et cetera. And like, what do all these things mean? And you can just start talking about, yeah, solutions to like various problems. And so um, I just wanted to emphasize the actual like role <laughs> that yeah. this kind of philosophy has played in my life, which has just allowed me to like let go of any time where I like e- because you can find yourself, I think you get attached to terms, right? It's like pretty natural. And then you can find someone using a term in a way that you didn't anticipate or a way you disagree with. And then every time that happens, now I just remind myself of Popper and be like, well, it doesn't matter. You know, you just, you know, for the sake of the conversation, you adopt their term and then yeah. it's game over. So anyway, that was just a, a beautiful summary and something that just um, honestly really changed my conversational habits in a, mm-hmm. in a, mm-hmm. I don't know if profound way, but in a, in a, in a way. <laughs> oh, oh my God. Like, yeah, don't argue about what a socialist is. Mm-hmm. Um, people argue about like the true definition of Marxism, the true definition of Christianity. What really is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Is she a socialist? Well, what's the true definition of socialist? Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> like these kinds of questions are a complete waste of time. And the relationship between essentialism and word obsession <laughs> is very straightforward mm-hmm. because when you start looking for the essence of something, this quickly becomes a definition game where you say, what is the true nature of man? Well, man is a featherless biped, um, <laughs> as if adding that definition has given you any insight into mm-hmm. what is man. But you get into these definitional games and then you'll say, no, man is a evolved primate. And then Deutsch will say, no, man is a universal explainer. <laughs> and yep. now you're just talking about definitions and, and what Popper says in open society is that the essentialist reads words oh, exactly from left to right. <laughs> what is a puppy? A puppy is a young dog. Whereas the, um, the scientist or the, the non-essentialist, I'll just say that to be less pretentious, uh, reads definitions from right to left. So we say, what shall we call a young dog? We shall call it a puppy. Um, and in so doing, we are using words as a means of making a long story shorter. So you have a long definition and we're just going to simplify that long definition via a quick label, slap a label on it. Um, So we're reading definitions from right to left and words are simply the answer to what shall we call Mm -hmm. um, questions. And that's it. And so if people want to argue about calling young dogs something else, then just as you said, you say, well, what do you want to call it? You want to call it a uh, young dog? Then we'll call it that. And so freeing yourself from thinking about words 
it's so subtle. Like the word suffering, for example, there are entire books dedicated to answering the question, what is suffering? Entire um, Oxford PhD theses that I've been perusing and yeah, perusing and <laughs> It's literally hundreds of pages. Yeah, beautiful. Um, a couple things that struck me as you were talking there. One was that uh, actually uh, training in mathematics, I think, is quite useful for this because this is sort of like just how things work in math. You'll be talking about some object and then you'll say, okay, let's, let's call this object H. And then you can, exactly. can you talk about H. And that's just naturally how it goes. And so I think as a student of mathematics, you get well-versed in the, in the world of nominalism uh, quite early. Um, the other thing was just hearkening back to our conversation with uh, Chris Lovegren. <laughs> I'm not even going to try and pronounce the name correctly. Just about like labels and groups of people labeling themselves yeah. things, right? And how when you take like a sort of anomalist or instrumentalist perspective on language, how sort of silly that is, right? How like bizarre it is to have uh, in your Twitter bio, like I am a this because depending on the conversation or depending on who you're talking to, that could mean very different things. And that's exactly. completely fine. Right. But when you, when you, you know, you're identifying as one particular uh, subset of uh, on the political spectrum or one particular thing, a vegan, a, you know, et cetera. Um, now you've subtly shifted your identity away from like just problem solving and figuring things out and moving forward. You've shifted it towards like defending just yeah. a particular word right yeah, <laughs> which is yeah, like yeah, a very yeah, just bizarre yeah. thing no no, no be be beautiful point like um i was nerding out and listening to it just like one of our uh, first or second conversations oh this is what um, you do in your free time hey yeah. just listen to yourself <laughs> pontificate on oh, the philosophy is, of probability it's all, it's out man it's yeah. public now you can't take Dude, it this back. is the most obnoxious thing i've ever said about myself <laughs> When I go to sleep, I listen to myself. I was you know? I was relaxing and listening to myself. Yeah, well, I was about to play myself to uh, to our unborn daughter. No, no, no. Um, so, so I was listening to an older episode because a friend was listening to it, and I forgot what the hell I said. But in that episode, I described myself as a critical rationalist, um, mm -hmm. and I did so because I was trying to distinguish between one way to view rationality mm -hmm. to another way. And so, as a as a means of distinguishing, I use that term, but. Once we're all familiar with what the hell critical rationalism is, I no longer really identify myself as a critical rationalist. I think you had said this in a conversation with Chris. The term vegan is just a useful way to describe yourself quickly, mm -hmm. but you don't think of yourself as a vegan with a capital V. It's just a, it's a descriptive tool, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's a way to describe. Yeah, yeah. It allows also language to be used in the way Popper suggests uh, like yeah. theories and just language in general be used about like not being more specific than the situation demands, I think. So exactly. like, you know, if, yeah, when you're trying to differentiate between different types of rationalism in that case, saying critical ra rationalism can be useful, but if the, you know, and that's because the conversation di didn't get more yeah. specific than that, that's fine. But if I started to ask like, okay, you know, what does that mean? Let's drill into the beliefs. Then the, the talking about critical rationalism ceases to become useful. And then yeah. we start using other terms um, and diving into it. It strikes me that taking an instrumentalist perspective on language is such a powerful cognitive tool. Mm -hmm. You've described one reason. It just allows you to interface with other people more smoothly because you yeah. no longer become attached to your language and you just use the language of other people. But if you also take the perspective of language being a tool that allows you to communicate ideas, then it leads to this notion that you should actively try to increase your vocabulary mm. as a means of sharpening your tool. But I've, I've used the example of um, like a sculptor 
and a chisel. It's like you have a thought, you have an idea in your head that you want to get out. Mm -hmm. Just like a sculptor has an idea that they want to carve out of marble. And you can only carve that idea um, with the granularity, with the resolution of your tools. Um, and so actively working to improve your vocabulary is a means of sharpening your instrument. And then that allows you to express ideas at a higher resolution. Intro. Okay, so here's a tension I never thought of before. So George Orwell famously, I believe in his essay, Politics in the English Language, but it could be somewhere else, describes how he tries to write actually as simply as possible to exactly. use like the least yeah. advanced vocabulary so that his writing will sort of last as long as possible, right? Because he's aware that language is like quite fragile. Mm -hmm. So on one hand, you do want to increase uh, your vocabulary in order to um, reach a wider audience and be able to like speak to them more clearly so that they'll understand you. But at the same time, you don't want your, your vocabulary to be so specific that within a matter of five, 10 or 20 years, the language has sort of like evolved and moved on such that you can no longer be understood. Um, right. Like think ah. of like old English or something now. Right. Or like it's and it's or even even old English is a bad example, actually. Just think of like a, a writer from the 50s or 40s. And though the, the people who wrote in a complicated way, it's very difficult to actually understand what the fuck they were talking about. Ah, but someone yeah. like Popper or Orwell, you can still read as if they were around because their language is not more complex than, than necessary to get the point across, right? Important distinction between increasing your vocabulary and using bigger words. Mm. Um, yes, so yes, yes. Yeah. using bigger words is never a good thing to do. But part of having a big vocabulary is choosing the right word from a wider set of mm. words that you can choose yeah, from. Good point. Yeah, nice. Very much not the same as... Uh, use complicated fancy words. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's um, increase your vocabulary so that they're available when you need to use them. But yeah, so in politics and the English language, which is like one of my favorite bloody essays that's ever been written, he he gives the writing advice of whenever like, and I use this literally every sentence I write. <laughs> it's how many words are in the sentence and can I make it shorter? Mm. Um, can I make this sentence shorter? Can I take out words? And you just do that. And you just take out words until you can't do it anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and then there'll be a, a, a block. There'll be something that stops you. And the thing that stops you is that you're now expressing the idea with as simple language as you possibly can. And if you take out any more words, you're now ruining the, the idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, dude. Yeah. Like fucking actually Twitter is great for this. So Twitter's got some problems, admittedly, but actually trying to sculpt tweets so that they get across your point, but fit into the 240 character limit yeah. is actually very illuminating, right? You're like, oh, I don't, I don't need this whole half a sentence. Like get, yeah. get this thing out of here. And it's, I've actually found like, you'll sit down to convey an idea and originally it'll be like 500 characters and I'll be like, fuck. And then it's like you whittle, you whittle it yep. down and you're like, oh, this is fine. Like I'm actually getting across. And, and as I'm doing that, I'm figuring out what I actually mean more. Like it's exactly. like it's yeah. helping me uh, or rather the relationship is um, uh, bi-directional, I guess. Right. Yeah, like yeah. me trying to tailor my tweet to be shorter actually helps me clarify my own thinking about like what's going on the like i think of increasing your vocabulary as like learning new martial arts it, you don't increase it so that you're going to use it all the time mm. but it's that you increase it so that when you need to use it you can and you're good at using it you don't just and, throw and, yeah, shit out I, I, yeah because it's, it's all it, about yeah. the um like nabokov somewhere said that it's like it's about the position of an unexpected word in the right place because like even the word explanation now has been totally used up in my head. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I, I can't use that word because everyone fucking uses it. Uh, and it worked so well when Deutsch used it. Yeah. Um, because he wrote a whole book talking about the power of good explanations. And that was a word that he introduced into 
the the culture. But words have the tendency of being used up very quickly, mm-hmm. and ideas too. The, like any good idea can be ruined through repetition. I, I'm now fu- fully believing it. Um, <laughs> it, it. It doesn't work anymore because yeah. it, it's not new. It's, it's not distinguishing between any existent yeah. ideas. Exactly. That's what gives new words life: is they distinguish between mm. ideas that are new and ideas that are stagnant and stagnating. Oh, nice. Yeah, there's some sort of relationship with like content here or something, right? Yeah. Like you want yeah. a word to provide as much content as possible, but one once everyone is using the same language, using the word like when you're talking about people who like have read Deutsch and been mm-hmm. ensconced in that world. Now using the word explanation, there's nothing there. It's not, yeah. me- it yeah. doesn't mean a fucking thing anymore. There's no yeah, exactly. content yeah. there. Okay. We, we okay, should, we should... <laughs> the, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a long ass tangent. So I think where we left off was talking about his criticism of essentialism. Is that right? How it's sort of obfuscatory. So yeah, there's a nice quote here at the bottom of page 141 that I think summarizes Popper's criticism of essentialism, and he says, quote, thus my criticism of essentialism does not aim at establishing the non-existence of essences. Hmm. It merely aims at showing the obscurantist character of the role played by the idea of essences in the Galilean philosophy of science. In other words, my criticism tries to show that whether essences exist or not, the belief in them does not help us in any way, and indeed is likely to hamper us, so that there is no reason why the scientists should assume their existence. And so this, I found this, yeah, this was very helpful for me because reading the whole thing, um, it's it can maybe seem like he's taking the position that there's like, there are definitely no essences to anything. But here he's saying, no, it's just that appealing to essences, like maybe they do exist, who knows, but appealing to them is unhelpful because then there's no questions to ask after that, right? Once you, you've you just made up that something is the ultimate essence of something, like a lot of people did with Newtonian gravity, now you've boxed yourself into some paradigm and you can't ask what is outside of it. The core of his critique for both essentialism and instrumentalism is that both of these views on knowledge prevent fruitful questions from being asked. So the essentialist, via unintentional misdirection, starts asking questions like, what is gravity? Um, rather than asking, how do falling objects behave? What is the cause of gravity? Can we explain gravity by deducing Newton's theory from a more general theory? Similarly, instrumentalism impedes progress by saying, we don't care about the what is, mm-hmm. um, we just care about predictions. Uh, and so you can see, hopefully, that both of these two views are diametrically opposed, both have some truth to them, but both ultimately impede progress because of the prevention of fruitful questions. And I like that because it's something that, like, I can't change the physics department nor the social science departments and departments where people ask these what is questions. But when I'm doing research, I can sure as hell prevent myself from asking these questions. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is one of the places where Popper allows you to start asking more fruitful questions yourself. At the end of the day, all you have are you and your thoughts and your laptop, and you get to ask questions in your head. And Mm -hmm. if you want to go on tangents about asking what is suffering and get to the bottom of that question, you're welcome to do so. But once you internalize the idea that that set of questions aren't going to lead you very far, then when you're doing research trying to figure out certain topics, this literally translates into what you write into Google, right? Because you're asking the questions. You're the one who's uh, Mm -hmm. probing into how things work. And uh, and that's why I think it's so so valuable because it can start allowing you to get a handle on these big philosophical questions by starting your research trajectory and from the right place. Fuck yeah. 
I don't think I have too much more to say about it. I don't know. Do you have anything uh, you want to hit before we sign off? No, not much. It would be ironic if someone accused us of uh, misunderstanding what essentialism or instrumentalism was, though. That would be funny, yeah. <laughs> given the whole nominalism discussion. But <laughs> <laughs> Missing the essence of culparative Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, dude. Well, this was fun. Talk to you soon. I'll see you, man. Bye.